Welcome everyone to a special edition of the East Comics Week Podcast. We love bringing you interviews from luminaries in the comic industry. And today we have a great one. We are proud to welcome Mark Russell. You may know him as a writer of God is Disappointed with You, Prez, Flintstone, uh, Snagglepuss, uh, and Wonder Twins, and the uh, very controversial, there was a lot of us about this title, Second Coming, and Billionaire Island. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hope you're doing well. Great, I am. Thank you. Great, thank you. And with me is uh, Steve J. Ray and Kendra Hale. Say hello, guys. Hello, guys. <laughs> hello, guys. <laughs> All right, so let's jump in with the questions. Uh, Steve? As a child of the 70s, um, and having read your prayers and some of the original issues, and of course, Wonder Twins, I I have to say thank you for bringing my childhood back in such a huge way. Um, Did the original runs have a big influence influence on you as I think they did? Because... It's largely your own work, but I can see real love for the classic stories there. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, I think you're the first person to ever thank me for what I've done to their childhood, so I, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> it's great. But, uh, but yeah, I, I grew, I was also a child of the 70s. I didn't read the original Ron Prez, but things like the Flintstones and Wonder Twins, I was you know really familiar with because I'd watched the cartoons growing up. And when, I, when I'm writing a series, even though I don't want to do like a tasteful homage to what's come before, so it's usually really boring. What, what I do like to do is take the two or three things I like about what I'm writing about, what it, and that I love, and build the, the story around that. So for like the Flintstones, what I really loved was the fact that like Fred was sort of an everyman, and I loved the fact that the uh, the animal appliances seem to like be disgruntled and on the verge of revolt. So <laughs> I kind of built the story around those two temples. And Kendra? Well, I guess if Steve J. Ray's going to be thanking you for his childhood, I'm going to go ahead and say thank you for what you've done for my adulthood. Oh, thank you. Because I got the chance to pick up Billionaire Island, and it was absolutely genius. Uh, well, business dog was my favorite thing. Yeah, business dog is like seems to be the breakout character of Billionaire Island. It's the one everyone talks about, like uh, when they mention it to me. And I'm totally happy with Billionaire with uh, business dog, even though I intended him more as like uh, as a metaphor than a, than a character. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the reception Billionaire Island is getting because I feel like in a lot of ways it was me at my angriest as a writer. So the fact right. that you're actually find some joy out of it is uh, really gratifying. Well, I guess my question with Billionaire Island would be, and I'm going to go ahead and throw a spoiler warning, was the ending hard for you as a writer? Was it gratifying? Uh, the, the ending, I didn't really know how it was going to end when I started writing, and but when I came up with the ending, when I, when I it came to be, uh, I couldn't imagine it ending other, any other way. I felt like this has to be the ending, so it was like Sort of like getting a Tetris or something. Yeah, it was very gratifying. It's like, oh yes, this is how it all falls into place. And and yeah, it was like also very cathartic because you're imagining an end to the system that is like 
haunting you enough that you feel compelled to write about it. So, yeah, it was it was a really good experience as a writer, just because I got to sort of play God for a little while. I like that answer, Brad. <laughs> now, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, at Billionaire Island, you were at your angles. And, uh, you know, when you do write, it seems like it would be very cathartic, you know, the, the, the how kind of fighting your satire can be. And do you, do you find it cathartic? Do you feel better after writing that? Or is it just making you angrier, realizing just how messed up the world is? No, I do feel better. I think that's probably how I got into writing this, that it's a form of therapy. Because I feel like I would, I would just sort of bubble over. I would just sort of, the pot, you know, when it, when a pot is boiling, you have two options. You can try to hold the lid down tighter to keep it from boiling over, or you can release the pressure. And the only one that's really sustainable is releasing the pressure. And I feel like that's what writing does for me, is it releases some of the pressure that's building up inside my mind. And, and I do feel better. I don't, and I also feel less powerless when I write, because I do feel like even if in only some abstract way, I am working for the change that I think needs to happen. Thank you. And Steve? Please um, talk to us about the greatest superhero nobody's ever heard of, the wonderful Repulso. Love that guy. Please tell us some more about him. It's funny, uh, Andrea Shea, the, uh, one of the editors that worked on Wonder Twins, like, that was her favorite character of the series. She loved him. And I think that, you know, I, I see why, because he's got, like, all the excuses to be bitter and to be sort of hateful towards people, but he's the sweetest guy you'll ever meet. He's, like, the least toxic, uh, person, even though his job is basically to, to sit there hung from a crane and smell bad so that people can't get close to him. And, and because he smells so bad, people throw bricks and bottles at him. And yet he's chosen this absolutely stoic, positive approach to life, even though he can't really have any friends. And all he ever gets to see from human beings are, are people who are, who, who hate to see him. And, uh, to me, he's like sort of the representative of the resilience of human spirit about how much of our own sort of interior life we actually control. Amazing, because he could easily have become a villain. But like you say, he is the nicest guy in the world, and I love him. Brilliant. I hope to see more of him in the future. Yeah, I hope so. Um, and you know, to me, it's like his thinking is not really a power. It's just it's sort of an affliction that happened to him. He's got this genetic condition that causes him to smell extremely bad. His real superpower is the ability to not let that destroy him. Amazing. Thank you, Brett. Uh, yeah, uh, were you surprised at all by the reaction to Second Coming? Was that kind of expected, or was it, um, did you, you know, was it, yeah, it, it didn't come as a surprise at all at how people reacted? It did, and perhaps that's on me. Perhaps I was naive. But it came as a surprise because I thought that it, people would at least give themselves a chance to read the story series before judging it. And all this sort of negative press and all this sort of controversy around for anybody that ever read a single page. And so I thought, I can understand why people would be trepidatious about it. I can understand why people would be a little ensconced uh, about this series about superhero sharing a bedroom with Jesus Christ. But I imagine they would at least give it a chance. I imagine they would withhold judgment until they could actually see how a 
treated the source material. And the fact that they did, I just sort of launched into it, um, did kind of surprise me. But I'm very gratified now by the, uh, the fact that the people who have read it, and I've been contacted by a number of people who said, well, I, I read it expecting to hate it, but then I realized there was actually much more about the Christ that uh, is it, that, that I grew up with, the Christ that is in the Bible, than it is about you know, making fun of Christ or about the sort of megachurch Christ that is sort of voiced upon people now. Thank you. And Kendra? There seem to be a lot of themes um, with your writing, and it makes me curious. Are there, I don't want to say Easter eggs, but are there things that you kind of put in plain sight for readers to pick up on? And if there are, what is your favorite? Yeah, there are little Easter eggs, little things I do drop from like one title to another, things that will show up in different series, or um, just sort of references to real life that most people may not pick up on. Uh, I think one of my favorites was um, in Prez, I had um, the billionaires, the CEOs who ran the corporate infrastructure of the world meet at a fast food restaurant to discuss the plan. And uh, the restaurant was actually called Build a Burger, uh, which was sort of a funny reference to the conspiracy theories that there's this group called the Build a Burger Group that controls the world. The secret burger Illuminati. <laughs> we know they're real. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, going back to Second Coming, I have to say that it, it does frustrate me when readers throw bricks without reading a single page, because honestly, the darker character, the, the less likable character, the less um, positive character is the superhero, and not Jesus himself. And did it surprise you? I mean, especially with DC's history, I mean, from Alan Moore's Swamp Thing to Neil Gaiman's Sandman to Preacher, they had much more controversial stuff. So did the reaction surprise you or... or or was it like, yeah, I should have known? Yeah, it surprised me. And I think part of the reason is just as you cite, there's been like a lot of comics that have dealt with religious themes that have dealt with Christ directly in a much more sort of uh, abrasive or sort of uh, overt way than I do. And so I, I just expected that I would get the same treatment. That people would just sort of like take it in stride and wait till they'd actually read it to form an opinion. Silly me. Well, you know, what you can think, but I'm so glad that now having read it and eager to read more, because it is coming back, right? Obviously, you've been justified. Yeah, I think so. And I also wanted to say about your um, observation about Sunstar, the superhero character, right? I think you're absolutely right. He is, in a lot of ways, the darkest character in there. Uh, and I think it's because the difference between him and Christ is, is that he sees power as the solution to problems, whereas Christ sees power as the problem. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Brad. Did In writing, there is sometimes kind of a lot of self-reflection, and did writing something like Second Coming or Billionaire Island, did it change your views on, say, religion or kind of, you know, what is going on in the world politically with Billionaire Island? They didn't change my views so much as they crystallized them. They just allowed me to sort of like uh, present my views in as concise and metaphorical a way as possible. 
the the book I wrote that really sort of changed my view was uh, God is Disappointed in You, which is the first book I ever wrote. Because I had grown up with the Bible, but I'd grown up with a very sort of parochial, narrow vision of it. So I'd long since sort of just dismissed it as kind of being nonsense, kind of fairy tales. Uh, and when I started writing God is Disappointed You, I had to really dive into the Bible and research. I read the 99% of the Bible I was never taught as a kid. And it struck me how profound a lot of it was, because it really is just 66 different authors all asking what God wants from them. And they all come up with slightly different answers. And, uh, to me, that's where the real meat of the Bible is, and where the profundity is not that it has all the answers, but that it has a lot of questions. And so I, uh, it sort of repaired my relationship with the Bible in a lot of ways. And, and in certain ways, it, it, um, it made me a lot more sympathetic towards Christianity as an idea, if not as a, an institution. Cool. Thank you. Once again, brilliant answer. Uh, Kendra? I know I keep going back towards Billionaire Island, but it's just because it's so fresh in my head. There's a specific weapon that's in the book that is absolutely fascinating to me, because if you have a chip implanted in you showing that you're part of that island, the bullets there can't hurt you. They dissolve. Right. Where and did again, that come it's, from? It's, it doesn't really have like an analog in reality. Uh, it just sort of is a metaphor for how you become bulletproof once you pass a certain level of wealth. You can get away with pretty much anything. Uh, and, and, you know, people could point like to Jeffrey Epstein as like sort of the, uh, the, the rebuttal to that. But, but I mean, the, the fact that he was as rich as he was meant that he got along with things that like for, for decades that most people would have been in prison, but locked up with the key thrown away like, like immediately. And so it is sort of just a metaphor for how the the how wealth renders you bulletproof. And that was just sort of the um, it also worked as a plot device because it it, it it gave the heroes a real disadvantage on Billionaire Island because he can't just resolve it with a shootout like you would expect from a lot of sort of comics where at the end the bad, the good guys just shoot the bad guys and the story's over. It doesn't work that way on Billionaire Island because you can't shoot a billionaire on Billionaire Island. You physically are unable to. And it leads for some great moments. I mean, it was brilliant. So I thank you for that, because for me coming in for that, like I said, that was my adulthood right there. It was brilliant reading the commentaries from not only you, uh, but also from the editor notes from Sarah Litt. Yeah, Sarah was great. I really had a good time working with her. And uh, we've been talking uh, back and forth about what a uh, sequel to Billionaire Island would be like. Um, that would be Absolutely wonderful. I would love to. I'm following you, so I'm going to keep tab on that. And you will hear. You will hear about it as soon as it's official. If it happens. Okay. Wow, you heard it here, folks. First, folks, <laughs> amazing. Um, I, I love what you said just now about the Bible, and it's literally 66 authors trying to tell the story their own way. And you've worked. I mean. Wonder Twins, Action Comics, um, Second Coming, Flintstones, Snagglepuss. I mean, that's a wide variety of characters, all of whom, all of whom have been written by countless writers over the ages. But I will say that you've managed to put your own little spin on all of them. Was that a conscious decision or sometimes with like something like Action Comics and Superman, are you happy just to tell the best Superman story you can? 
Now, I feel like you have to bring a bit of your personality to it. I think you have to think about what it is these characters mean to you. You can't just be a mercenary who's like, well, I can mimic the Superman stories that I've really liked over the years and just bang one out in that style. To me, that feels like kind of forgettable and pointless. I think what, you know, if you're looking to tell a story, the one story the, uh, the world doesn't have yet is your story. So bring what's bring your view, bring your how how the world has treated you to the characters that you're writing, and that's what makes them unique, and that's what kind of makes the stories worth reading. Nicely put. I like that a lot. And it, uh, I will say, in my personal opinion, I liked it. Thank you. Thank Brad. you. Uh, with this, the satire and all these things that you were trying to say about the world, at large, are there any characters like you know, you know, Steve? You were saying about the super, like Superman. Is there any characters that you would like to write in line to those satire? It was like maybe a Black Lives series or something like that. Uh, I, I think maybe a, um, uh, if it's going to be satirical, like overtly satirical, in a big two title, I think maybe like a like a Green Arrow or a Howard the Duck. <laughs> And um, Howard the Duck, that's interesting. What what kind of satire would you use Howard the Duck to kind of exemplify? Well, I think I would make him, I think I would have him go through like a um, a journey where he uh, got enormously wealthy and then lost it all. Sort of an Elmer Gantry type thing. Nice. So you could, you know, I don't know if you ever heard of the book, uh, The Golden Ass, but it was like, the one of the first novels ever written in the Western tradition. It was a Romanesque. Uh, it was uh, written in the second century A.D. by a, a Roman citizen named Lucius Apulius, and it tells the story of this rich young man who goes to Greece to learn about sorcery and magic because he can spend a year traveling abroad because he's got so much money. But while he's there, he accidentally turns himself into an ass, into a donkey. And then it's about him seeing the Roman Empire, not through the eyes of this rich, young Roman man, but as this donkey who everyone's beating and, like, throwing loads, like, forcing him to work and, like, not beating him. And he gets to see firsthand all the hypocrisy of the people who uh, who are the pillars of society because they don't think they'll, like, hide them, their true selves from a donkey. So it's this great sort of... Um, uh, satire on Roman society of the second century AD. And I, if I were going to do like a Howard the Duck thing, I'd want to do something like that. Something where he gets to see, uh, American society from a variety of angles that people don't think they have to like perform in front of it. Cool. What a great answer. Uh, Kendra? Oh, I think that my, my next question would be with everything that you've had a chance to do the writing for, I mean, the menagerie of different characters. Has there been one that's been harder for you than others? Yeah, they're all hard, but the, I think the one that's sort of like most difficult for me, even though I've written uh, some some stories, is, is Batman. Uh, just because he's so laconic and he doesn't talk a lot and he's not very effusive about his feelings, it's harder for me to be expressive with him. But in the Batman that I have written, I've gotten around that a little bit by using the captions more, using more of his internal monologue 
do the work that I would normally have a character do just by speaking and feeling. Nice. I have to ask you, because a lot of your work is really, really funny, but you're not going for all-out comedy or slapstick or stupid gags. It's more about thoughtful comedy. And I have to ask you about the Harley Quinn special, Villain of the Year, and the whole awards ceremony stuff. Um, it was such a brilliant little dig at pop culture and reality shows and everything else. Uh, was that part of your reasoning for, for writing that story? Yeah, I wanted to just sort of be a send-up of, like, yeah, award ceremonies, how sort of flatulent gratuitous they are. And I say that as somebody who's been to a award ceremony, and, like, a lot of what Pink Flamingo is going through up in the rafters, sort of boiling over the He's been passed up for the awards. A lot of that is based upon my own sort of dark psyche. Uh, <laughs> like sitting there losing award after award. Um, but uh, yeah, it was sort of a send up of that whole experience and also the, of, of the concept of villains themselves. Probably the most overtly comedic thing I've written where it's just trying to tell jokes. I'm so mad at myself right now. I did the review for that. For yes, you did. I didn't know that that was more pretzel. <laughs> what? Dang it. I'm I know. I'm As like, your editor, ah. I'm very <laughs> I'm sitting over here in Happy Hue Land with Billionaire Island, and he did horribly. Your favorite character. It's not very, it's not similar to like most of my Uber It's, it's a little different, so. That's understandable. It's way different. <laughs> but it was still brilliant. I loved it. I am so sorry I didn't know. Oh, you're forgiving. Uh, I'm just uh, making more excited for this interview, so now I'm back on like level. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. And obviously, with the whole awards thing, um, you've got an Eisner now, so... I do not. <laughs> I have yet to win an answer. That, that's one of the biggest... Yeah, I, uh, well, nominated. I mean, that's good enough. For me. If I've got a nice nomination, I'd just die happy. I think that's that's what I tell myself. <laughs> <laughs> I did win a, a Glad Award. Uh, me and Mike Feehan uh, for the Snagglepuss Chronicles. We won a Glad Award. Frankly, I I I think is at least as good as a nice, probably better. But um, yeah, not that. Nothing I'm award obsessed. Nothing I want you to get that idea. I'm just award obsessed adjacent. I would, I would like to win an award. It'll happen. Yes, it will. What got you into comics originally? As a reader or as a writer? Uh, both. Well, as a reader, I you know didn't grow up with like. It's not like I grew up knowing. About the rich literary patois of comics. I grew up reading, you know, Mighty Mouse and, uh, Donald Duck comics. Uh, although I did, when I was like 11, I discovered Mad Magazine. That was sort of my jam. So, yeah. Until I discovered later in life, in college, I discovered that there was such a thing as like Neil Gaiman or Alan Moore or Linda Berry. And that's kind of when I, it opened my world as a reader. Like this is actually a very highly literary and artistic medium in which anything is possible. So that was sort of my journey as a reader. Uh, as a writer, I had, as I mentioned before, I'd written a couple of books. I had not really aspired to be a comic book writer. I just thought I was going to keep writing these books that no one would read. 
until uh, Marie Javens asked me if I'd be interested in writing press because she had caught some of my Count Chocula fan fiction on, on Facebook. And that's probably the worst break-in story to comics you'll ever hear. But that's how it happened. That's really nice. Marie is now editor-in-chief at DC, so it apparently worked out for her, too. Nice. <laughs> I didn't destroy her career. <laughs> sure. And, and can, can we go back to this Count Chocula fan fiction? <laughs> sure. I'm so intrigued. What, what was the fan fiction? There's just these little sort of dark gothic horror stories, very Game of Thronesy, but in starring like Count Chocula and Frankenberry and Blueberry and Captain Crunch. And uh, there, Ahoy Comics is actually publishing little shorts uh, based upon that fan fiction in their series Edgar Allan Poe's Snifter of Terror. So there's like little 12, 14 page snippets of these stories in the uh, in their their comic. If you ever care to read them. Back off, Steve. I've already messaged Josh. <laughs> <laughs> you read my mind. I need to read. Oh, oh okay. I can't review it. I'm still going to read it. So, yeah. But that's a, a new uh, serial monster story coming out uh, on Wednesday through the new Edgar Allan Poe Snifter of Blood, number two. There's going to be a. Uh, for legal reasons, I can't call it a Count Chocula story. It's a, so it's a it's a Marquis de Coco story. <laughs> oh, I'd murder those. Would that make me a serial killer? No, I'm not going to go there. Um, <laughs> back to my serious serious question ish. Um, looking back at everything you've done, um, you've mentioned your game. You mentioned Alan Moore. You did a fantastic story in, in the Something Roots of Terror deluxe book. Um, and uh, Something's one of my all time favorite characters. Another one who's grossly underrated. Um, would you do more horror? Would you more do more dark fantasy, given the chance? Yeah, I would. And I love, I like you. I love Swamp Thing. Uh, he's one of my all-time favorite characters in the DC canon, largely because of you know what Alan Moore did with him. But yeah, uh, and I think that's the, the appropriate way to approach Swamp Thing. Is like this is like a horror story with the, the soul told through by the soul of a poet, and that's what I try to do with that. But yeah, I would I would welcome the chance to write some more horror and obviously some more swamping. That guy's due is well overdue another solo title, I think. Um he's brilliant in Justice League Dark under James Tynan and Ram V, but I would love to see a solo story. And what I read of yours, I'd definitely like to see more of that. Thank you. Brad uh, would you um consider any of your your creator-owned properties to be adapted as either a TV show or a movie? And if so, which one and why? Yeah, I would like them all to be adapted to TV shows and movies. And uh, I think like, if it was Billionaire Island, I think ideally that would be made into like a two-hour film. Uh, <laughs> you know, sort of like a... I could see it like being sort of a Robert Altman-esque style, like The Player or like uh, Nashville. Something like that. If, if uh, it was Second Coming, I'd rather see it, I think, be a TV series, like an animated series, sort of like Bojack Horseman. And, uh, yeah, all my creator and stuff, I, I think I, w- I would be tickled if they made it into like a TV show or a movie. Oh, thank you. And Kendra? I would love to see the cover 
where it's business dog and his two poodles in there somewhere in this movie because yes. that would be brilliant. Yeah, I, I, would I, be I, just, yeah. I thought for a while that that maybe this should be the cover of the trade paperback. This was such an evocative image. Uh, we ultimately went with the uh, the cover for the first issue with the guy, the billionaire, stepping on the inflatable planet Earth uh, because it's it's I think a more succinct embodiment of what the story's about. But yeah, that's probably my favorite single image to come out of the entire series is that dog, business dog, and the speedboat with his poodles. <laughs> I absolutely love that book. If you, if it, whoever's listening, if you haven't read it, that is something that needs to be in your top five on to read because it's brilliant. But I think I think my question will be this: so you came up with such a believable way for them to depopulize the Earth in uh, in Billionaire Island. Did you have any inspiration behind the, the idea for it? Not really. Um, I just thought about, like, you know, I think it mostly came out of the idea that, like, well, if the billionaires were to retreat to Billionaire Island, uh, people would eventually get so desperate they would just invade Billionaire Island. If that was the plan, they just waited out there. Eventually, you'd have, you know, millions of pirates. Basically, the whole world would be re- become like Somalia. You'd just have all these pirates roaming around. So it had to be accompanied by another way to keep that from happening a way to sort of winnow down the human population so that the longer they, the worse things got on Earth, the the less likely people would be able to uh, get together and conquer Billionaire Island. What I loved in recent years is the brilliant mashups that DC have done with the Hanna-Barbera and uh, Looney Tunes characters. And obviously I loved them. Um, Tom King's Batman Elmer Fudd, but I also really loved your Booster Gold Flintstones. I mean, where did that come from for a start? And do you think it was partly because of your Flintstones history? Or did you guys, as writers, um, nominate yourselves for those, or were they all assigned? Because some of those stories were absolutely brilliant. Well, in my case, it was assigned. Like, Dan DeDio was the one who came up with the idea for having a Booster Gold Flintstones crossover, because they were doing those Hanna-Barbera crossovers with uh, regular DC heroes, and it was his idea to combine them. And I, and that, but I was sort of the obvious choice to write it, just because I, I just finished writing the Flintstones. So I was the beneficiary of, of uh, incumbency. Because I just love the whole fact that obviously Booster's far future, Flintstone's ancient past, and that whole dichotomy of it was just so funny. <laughs> Thank you, Brad. Uh, do you do you prefer the uh, your your own characters, your own own idea uh, IPs, or do you prefer working with things like Hanna Barbera and DC characters? I think I prefer my own IP just because I can do whatever I want. I don't have to worry about uh, getting sued or. Uh, Having an editor tell me that I, I have to change something, so it's more liberating to write my own. But the, the advantage of working with obviously the IP of other people is that you get this cultural equity. You don't have to explain to people who Fred Flintstone is or who Snagglepuss is. They they already get it. So and it also kind of 
can be used as a tool because they think they know who these characters are. They think they know what kind of story you're going to tell. So when you tell something very different, it, you know, it, it automatically, you've automatically got their attention. You sort of surprise them right out of the gate. So there is advantage to working with existing IP, even though I think writing wise, it's, it's easier to write your own characters. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks, Kendra. I'm trying to think of what I, how I want to phrase this. So, we've talked a lot about your comic work. Do you ever plan on doing anything more in the novel variant, or have you? Well, actually, I've written a novel that was never published. It was one of the, it's about 300 pages long, and I never published it just because I was still learning how to write, I think. Uh, and I'm debating about whether or not I should ever go back to it finish it or whether I should just sort of play it and, and use the best parts in other works. I'm not really sure what I'm going to do, but it, it represented a pretty decent chunk of my life working on that novel. So I, eventually I need to do something with it. I'll be patiently waiting. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did want to ask you, because I, I do like to look past the of, of all the writers we speak to. Because um, I know how, how I would react if it was me, but do you still get that real rush of, wow, these artists have done a great job? When you get a finished page of artwork based on one of your scripts back in your hands and you look at what they've done, and do you still get that rush even after so many comics being written over the years? Yeah. It, you know, to me, it's my favorite time of month. It's when I get the new artwork in for a series. Uh, that's when it feels real to me. I see how somebody else has interpreted it and put it into artwork. So yeah, I still, I mean, it's not as novel as it was when it first happened, and that was like sort of like being a kid on Christmas morning. But now, but it, to me, it's now it's just like it's just sort of like like when you're playing live music and you're jamming with somebody and you know that you're in sync, you know that you are on the same page, and you have these sort of moments of sort of togetherness of like feeling like you are that somebody gets you. That's what I get now from the seeing the artwork. Outstanding because it is such a collaborative medium and, and to have that relationship must be amazing. Yeah, and not just with the artist too. I mean the the colorist has got to be on board, the uh, editors play a big role in it. So it is a very collaborative medium. There's, there's usually five or six people that all kind of have to be buying into the vision of whatever you're doing, which is hard sometimes if you are doing something a little off the beaten path. The orchestra has to play in unison or the tune won't work. Absolutely. Brilliant. We we were talking to a color artist yesterday evening, Brett Anderson, so a newfound love and respect for, for people I've always thought were hugely underrated anyway. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Brad? Keeping on the artist theme, is there an artist that you haven't had a chance to work with that you would like to be able to look at the art and say they would really get what I'm trying to to say? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of artists. i got a huge laundry list of artists. Um, I mean, not that I'm complaining about anyone I've been able to work with so far. I mean, I've worked with some really fantastic artists. But, uh, yeah, I think one person on my short list that I would like to work with in the near future is... Uh, Marley Zarcone, who did the artwork for uh, uh, Shade the Changing Girl. 
uh, with Cecil Castellucci. That, that artwork just sort of blew me away, so I'd love to work with, with her, uh, or Marguerite Bennett, or Doc Shane. You know, any of them. And I actually have worked with Doc Shane. I'll be like on a short 10 page, um, story for the, uh, for the Terrifics annual. So, I, my laundry list is not very realistic because people may never want to actually work with me. I think that's the real question. Is would they ever want to work with me? <laughs> and Kendra? I will sacrifice myself on the altar that is Mark Russell if he ever <laughs> chooses to want to work with me. But I guess my, my question is one that's like Steve's where it's one of my favorite to ask just because I like the insight from the inside. And that is, is there a trope that you see being used a lot in in media or in the comic world um, that is your least favorite trope to, to see people fall back on? Well, the thing I hate, the tendency, and I understand why people do it, because you've got to keep people reading month after month, is the sort of um, unearned cliffhanger, just sort of like a comic where it treads water for 20 pages and then ends in a cliffhanger so you have to sort of come get it next month. To me, that's just like a, that's like a, a boxer who's gone into the rope-a-dope. He's just sort of like sitting on the ropes, protecting themselves, not really throwing any punches uh, until hoping the other, you know, saving their punches for when the other boxers sort of worn themselves out. It's, you know, might be strategic, uh, strategically sound, but it's not very interesting to watch. Uh, so I try to avoid that. I try to o- avoid the use of like um, cliffhangers that aren't really like necessary. That don't really you haven't really spent twenty pages kind of like building up to, and and not using it as an excuse for for not writing the previous nineteen pages. And also, um, sort of the battle royale. I mean, this these are these are sort of cliches. I like when I'm in a superhero movie and they have a giant battle royale at the end. That's usually where I start checking out. That's usually where I start snoozing because it's, we've seen it a million times and it's sort of what, you know, naturally has to happen in that script where all the team gets together for one last battle against the villains. But it just feels so overtrod and there's so few original ways to approach it that to me it's like, um, I would like, I think I like the, uh, the stories that end on a more sort of, Unorthodox though, so I, I try to like steer clear of those when I can. I love that. Thank you. Um, you mentioned the terrifics, and I forgot you um did the special with the, the Tom Strong, isn't it? The um America's first comics um special. Uh, going back to Alan Moore and, and the whole um Promethean Tom Strong era. Um, were there any other of your Formative comics, the the characters that you'd love to get a crack at that you haven't yet. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of characters I think I, I would I would like to write if given the chance. Uh, the um, uh, Fantastic Four would be amazing, uh, and I think also uh, maybe the Spirit or something would be really cool because uh, I'm such a huge fan of. Of Will Eisner. Um, yeah. Very cool. Thank you. Brad? Uh, you mentioned a, a, a novel. Now, what about like a, a screenplay or a teleplay? Yeah, uh, I would I would be very open to writing 
a, a screenplay or a teleplay. The key for me is I just have to find something that, um, find the time, find the time to write something that I'm not getting paid for immediately. It's, you know, once you're, once you've taken that plunge, once you're writing comics professionally, you become like a shark where you have to constantly be writing or else you die. And Kendra? I know you said that when you write, a lot of it, like all of them are hard, but is there one where it was just an easy flow, where it was fast-paced, it was just you doing your thing, and it was it was just easy? Yeah, some are definitely easier than others, and I think the easiest ones, you can't really predict when it's going to happen, are the ones where, yeah, you're just sort of, each sort of page sort of tells you what you need to do next. And it rarely happens, but when it does, it's magical. And I, I think something like the um, the one that, that I think probably flowed the easiest for me was the uh, uh, snapshots I did, the Captain America snapshots I did with print music. It's one where everything just sort of seemed to tell me where I needed to go. And it was uh, a real pleasure because the, the writing process, didn't, I, I didn't feel like I had to struggle too much over it. Partly because he came up with the general idea for the story, so I, I didn't have to do that myself. <laughs> and Steve? I wanted to ask, on a similar note, actually, thank you, Kendra, for, for bringing that topic up, because as a writer, obviously, frequently, especially if you're given assignments, there are some that you think, oh, yeah, I'd love to write that, and some you think, oh, how am I going to handle that? But then research and actually getting into it has totally turned the notions on its head. Were you ever given an assignment and you thought, oh, no, this is going to be a nightmare, but then it turned out to be a dream come true? Yeah, the Flintstones. Uh, that was one where it's like, when they offered it to me, I was just like, I don't know. I don't really, I never really enjoyed the Flintstones cartoons. I wasn't really sure how I was going to approach this. and just felt sort of mercenary to write a Flintstones comic book. Uh, but they seemed to really welcome the idea that I didn't like the Flintstones. So that got me thinking, well, if, if I can write something, you know, that I want to write and just use the Flintstones to do it, what is it I want to talk about? That's when it occurred to me. This is actually a story, not about catchphrases and, but about like the dawn of civilization and the foundational errors that we're still dealing with today. And that's when it clicked for me. That's when I was on board with, with the Flintstones. Brilliant answer. Love it. Thank you. Brad? And uh, I know that uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, so uh, maybe we can just do one more round of questions. Uh, did you ever have a story that ended, you know, when you started out thinking it was going to end one way, or the story was going to go in one direction, and it ended up going completely uh, in the opposite of what you expected it to be, before you, yeah. you know, once you got into writing yeah, it happens actually quite a bit um, because, yeah, you, when you start outlining a story, you start thinking of a story idea, you're an architect, right? You're just sort of, okay, this is the blueprint. This is how things are going to fall in place. But then when you are actually writing the story, you're a craftsman. You're, you're with the wood, carving against the grain or carving with the grain. And you realize suddenly that this is not like a bench. This is a, a table. And so, but, I, but I've learned to sort of give in to the craftsman. So I think that's where all the good stuff is. Is like go where the story and where the characters need to go as you're writing them, not necessarily where you had intended to go. You know, when you sat down and thought about the story for 30 minutes, trust where your instincts are when you're working with the story hour after hour after hour, 
And that's in the, the business of actually writing. Thank you. And Kendra? I know I'm going to regret letting this be my last question, but it's going to kill me if I don't ask it, so I'm just going to let it go. In Billionaire Island, is the president supposed to be Kid Rock? For legal reasons, I can't answer that question. <laughs> That's brilliant. Sort of uh, a facsimile of, uh, of, of what would happen if certain celebrities did continue to dominate the political landscape. Outstanding. <laughs> um, for my final question, obviously, again, going back to the, the life of a writer, especially a comics writer, um, have there ever been projects that have been maybe offered to you that for one reason or another you couldn't take on immediately and you wish you had because it was something that went on to be something great that you would have loved to be a part of? No, I've never really had that problem just because I, I've said yes to pretty much everything. Um, but yeah, um, not really. I, I don't have an example of that. I, I think I have turned some things down, but not that I regret it. Thank you. Thank you. And I would just ask one more question. What bit of advice would you give to writers who are trying to either break into the comic industry or, you know, just trying to get their feet wet with, with the idea of writing a good comic script? Yeah, I would say worry about the latter rather than the former. Uh, worry about writing a good comic script. Worry about writing, period. And think, you know, more laterally about what medium you're, you're going to get that writing out there. Uh, because you never know, you never know who's going to see what you put out and what, you know, you know opportunities are going to arise from that. And it might not be comics, it might be video games or it might be TV or, um, web comics or something. So don't be so wed to one medium that you write exclusively. You put all your eggs in that basket for that medium. Just worry about being a writer. Just keep writing and put things out whatever way you can. And maybe it will segue to writing in comics. Maybe it will segue to writing in something else. But me, I think the key is as long as you're committed to your what it is you actually want to do, which uh, I assume is probably storytelling if you're a writer, then let the medium, the opportunities sort of sort themselves out. Just put out your work into the world like you're scratching off a lottery ticket. Most won't scratch off as winners, but that's okay. Uh, all you need really is, is one or two to to be winners. You're you're working. All right. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for taking the time to answer our questions and give us that amazing insight. Uh, we really we really do appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure. So, thank you. And where can people uh, find you on social media if they want to follow you and see what you're up to? Uh, best place is Twitter. I'm on there almost constantly. And they can find me on Twitter at Manrus, M-A-N-R-U-S-S. I'm also on Instagram under the same handle, but uh, I'm a pretty lazy Instagrammer. I don't have a lot of my Instagram page. So uh, probably best to check me out on, on Twitter. Okay, great. And Steve, where can people find you? Most of the time I can be found on the weekly DC Comics News main podcast talking about 
everything DC that's gone on the previous seven days. Every now and then you can find me on the Mad Love Harley Quinn cast. And on my own show, I Am The Night, where we review Batman the Animated Series on a weekly basis. For my written work, just Google Steve J. Rafe or my news reviews and interviews across Dark Knight News and DC Comics News. And also um, chat to me on Twitter, please. I want to talk everything comics with everybody at Stevo E-L underscore S-T-E-E-V-O. Kendra. I almost want to say your line, Stephen, just be like, Google me. But <laughs> honestly, the easiest way is probably going to be Twitter. Um, I can be found at Devour All Words. Um, I'm also on the weekly podcast for DCN and on uh, the Harley Mad Love podcast, as well as writing news and opinion pieces for both Dark Knight News and DC Comics News. And you can find me writing news reviews for DC Comics News. You can find me also on the Mad Love uh, Harley Quinn podcast. And as far as the DC Comics News, you can find us wherever you listen to your to you listen to your podcasts: uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, Google Play. Uh, and uh, please like us, subscribe, and uh, you can also check out Spinner Rack. I am the Knight as part of the DC Comics News Network. Thank you again, Mark, so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, we so like, yeah. And uh, we like to uh, end the uh, podcast with something that everybody should be doing, and that is to... Wash your hands? Nope. <laughs> Read more comics. Take care. Bye.